Welcome to the Friday edition of Unexpected Points. I'm going to cover Thursday night football, another big upset. I'm going to go more into the big upsets that we've seen recently and what it says about the NFL season. Also, a couple of big free agent signings that we're going to have to talk about. And lastly, of course, we go into the rest of the Week 10 slate and my best bets. Let's get to it. All right, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Um, if you are like me and you have the, the football sickness, you were probably thinking multiple times last night during this Thursday night Dolphins-Ravens matchup that you wanted to turn off that television. You wanted to get out of there. But you just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it until the end, until the very end. I know, it's, it's sad, it's sick, but it's who we are. So acceptance is probably part of the move going forward. So that's what we're going to talk about first uh, before we get into best bets and some other things. I also have a little bit of a, not stick to sports rant, but I didn't really talk about the Aaron Rodgers situation that much on the Tuesday wrap-up episode because I it takes a lot more time to go through all those different games. I go through them in more detail than I do for the the previews and the best bets because I'm really going to focus heavily on the few games. I have four plays this week that I like a lot that I'm going to focus the most on. But I want to talk. I'll talk about Rodgers a little bit too in some of this. My my thoughts about the conformity of these non-conforming groups. Uh, and in, in Roger's case, it's the anti, the anti-woke mob group there. I know people don't necessarily love the talk about, about Rogers, but I think it's important things that we can kind of think about when we get into our little subsets, even on in the football world. But first and foremost, Thursday night football. So uh, Thursday night football, it ends up 22-10. The Miami Dolphins at home defeat I was going to say our Baltimore Ravens. I don't know who's our team here. They're still one of the one of the top teams for analytical nerds like myself. The Ravens, it was eight and a half, moved out a little bit after Tua was declared not the starter, that they were going to start Jacoby Brissett. But as we saw, Tua end up coming back in, even with the broken finger. Why wasn't he starting from the beginning? What's going on there? I don't know. Um, it's a weird situation, especially coming on the heels of last year where they had – Fitzpatrick, Ryan Fitzpatrick playing kind of out of his mind, honestly. He was playing like a top five quarterback in order to, from a lot of advanced metrics. Then they flipped to Tua after the bye. Then they flipped back to Fitzpatrick for a game-winning drive at the end. And then they went back to Tua and then the back and forth. I don't think it really harms Tua's long-term profile going forward. I think it's more a reflection on the fact that he is flawed and that they obviously have a flawed offensive situation with the offensive line and how much pressure that he's taking there. I think that's more than anything else. The old saying of, if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Well, the problem is, it's not that going to two quarterbacks in and of itself is the issue, that that is the problem, that if you just pick the one better quarterback of this of this um, ambivalence that you have between the two quarterbacks, the indifference between these two quarterbacks. If you just picked one, you'd be in a better circumstance. I don't think that's true. I think the problem is when you go to two quarterbacks or when you have some back and forth about those quarterbacks, the issue is both of them are not very good. And that's what happens there. And I think that's reflecting a little bit on Tua here. And the market 
when it comes to the betting markets, they are having an indictment of Tua here also by the fact that these lines are not moving out that far. They're maybe moving out a point. Sometimes they're going over key numbers. Sometimes they're not. What we've seen the last two weeks with Tua missing these games, at least not being the starter for these games, is that the market is not adjusting that much to Jacoby Brissett. And as I've said before with Brissett, I do not believe he is even an average starter. I think he is pretty much locked in as a player in the 20-somethings. Teams seem to like him. Coaches seem to like him. He seems to be a great locker room guy. Uh, but I don't think he provides high-end play, and I think he also can get you into a lot of mistakes uh, holding the ball too long, especially with this type of offensive line. So to hit back to the paradigm that I have here, oh, I, I didn't discuss my adjusted scoring here. So the adjusted scoring on this one was more like 15 to 14. The uh, Dolphins being slightly better is a much closer game according to my adjusted scores. And let's talk about some of the reasons why that'd be the case. But first, let's hit our headline. So I think the headline for this one coming out of this game, what people are going to be talking about is who's a good team, especially in the AFC. We just don't know if any team is good in the AFC. Uh, Maybe we can't trust anyone. Every time there's a team that we say to ourselves, hey, maybe this can be one of the top teams in the AFC, whether it was the Bengals before, the Bills the Chiefs, and now the Ravens. There are teams that just don't end up playing well. Uh, So let's go into some of the numbers here. If you look at it, the success rate for these teams, I mean, the Ravens had a better success rate on offense. They had a 44% success rate versus a 35% success rate for the Dolphins. And again, that feeds a lot into my adjusted score here. And that's why it was very, very close, um, despite the fact that the final score was much, much wider. Now, the efficiency, though, was a lot worse for the Ravens. In particular, they had the big play, the biggest play of the game that we saw here, which was the the fumble six. That was an eight-point EPA move. It was a huge, huge move there. Um, So that was the biggest play. And then another big play was when Tua threw down the sideline to Albert Wilson for that 64-yard catch, which was essentially a blown coverage. So there were a lot of kind of fluky things that ended up having in this game. So even when there was scoring here from the Dolphins near the end of the game, it wasn't scoring that to us or to my numbers plays out as, oh, this is a consistent, sustainable way to score. It was more of a lucky way to score. I mean, this was a game where both quarterbacks were had passing grades in the 50s. This is a game where uh, in total the, the Dolphins and – The Ravens had equal numbers of, they had four turnover-worthy plays total between between the two games. It was just ugly, ugly. Nine sacks in this game. We saw that the Dolphins finally got some of that turnover luck. Now, that's something that we hadn't seen from them already this year. So I think that the, the Dolphins coming into this game, if you look at their actual score differential, so how good of a team they have been, on an average game, so if you take the, the score differential on the number uh, on the season, you divide it by the number of games, they're losing, coming into this game, on average by 9.7 points a game, which is very, very poor. But my adjusted scores, if you look at my adjusted scores for every game, which again are going to downweight the turnovers, downweight the outlier plays, are going to play more into how successful and sustained the offenses have been versus big plays in either direction. They're only negative 2.2. It was the, it's amongst all the teams in the NFL, the fact that there was this 7.5 point difference between what's actually happened and what I would say is the underlying quality of the team 
was the biggest difference of any team in the NFL. So that's why, like the Dolphins, I had them as a play last week um, against the Texans. They were almost a play this week against the Ravens, but once Brissett was put in there, I have a pretty big uh, drop for Jacoby Brissett, big enough that it did not make them a play at at, at the eight and, eight and a half number. Uh, but this really was just an awful game from an offensive perspective. And l- let me just read out to you how this game started. It's almost comical how this game started as far as the drives. It went field goal, punt, missed field goal, punt, 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 field goal, punt, 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 field goal, punt, 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 field goal, fumble six, punt, punt. And that's before the last two touchdowns to end the game. And those touchdowns, again, one of them was highly dependent upon a blown coverage pass to Albert Wilson. The other one, when the Ravens came back and scored, was really dependent on a couple of questionable, at best, roughing the passer calls that ended that ended up getting Jackson going there. And again, you know, a lot, a lot of information out here on what happened. They were just doing cover zero and blitzing Lamar over and over and over again, and it seemed to work. I'm not sure why it's happening. I thought it was interesting that there was a lot of complaining on the timeline. Even I was doing some play calling complaining, and I know that I, I ranted against that in the uh, people attacking Nagy and and the Justin Fields apologist doing that before. So even I even I got caught up in this a little bit. But what I thought was especially interesting is people getting caught up about the fact that they didn't have any cover zero beaters. Where are your cover zero beaters? Where are your cover zero beaters? How come we didn't have plays ready to go to beat this cover zero when Miami comes from that Patriots, you know, Brian Flores comes from that Patriots school where they bring a lot of blitz and they do run cover zero as much as anyone. They have um, Xavier Howard, they have uh, Byron Jones, they have corner covers, uh, cover corners that they can really use in those situations. So why weren't they ready for it? And I think it's funny to think that, I think that I'm going to kind of put this into the rant against people complaining about coaching. It's like, obviously the coaches thought about this beforehand. Obviously they could see what was happening. I don't think that like they got caught off guard not having this. Maybe that got they got caught off guard by the frequency under which the Dolphins were able to do it. Maybe they got caught off guard under the way that the team wasn't necessarily prepared enough to execute it. They weren't executing properly. But I think it's pretty hard to say, hey, how come the coach didn't pick a play to beat cover zero when they're running cover zero 25 times during this <laughs> during this game obviously they weren't getting surprised by it over and over and over again obviously they were trying to run their best plays against cover zero it was just not working so the the theme after this game may be a little bit of the Ravens play callers and uh failed uh you know Greg Roman failed Lamar Jackson on this one but in reality, I think they were trying to beat it, whether it was via screens or others, and they just were not blocking, blocking and not executing well on these plays. Uh, I think they could have maybe just thrown the ball up to Marquise Brown a little bit more often to try to even just draw a DPI in these circumstances, and we didn't see it. And, you know, sometimes with these cover zero defenses, too, it's a high-variance defense. And if you're rolling the dice on this, Maybe you can get through an entire game and only give up one big play or two big plays, and then it ends up being appealing for you. Other times, you could run cover zero every single play, and without anything changing, without there being any fundamental difference in the quality of the play calling or the quality of the play, 
things just happen to go your way. There's a few coverages that don't happen to be there. There's a, you know, a missed tackle in certain situations and that it ends up being a very unsuccessful defense. So they, they played the variance game, which is great if you're an eight and a half point underdog, uh, but it also fits into their style of play for the Dolphins. And that's why they ended up winning this game. Uh, let me go on now to some of the thematic stuff and the signings before we get into the review of the best bets for the week. But before I do that, I want to make sure everyone is aware, and you should be if you listen to this podcast, everyone is aware that you can get 25% off any PFF subscription with promo code UNEXPECTED. Support the pod, show the higher-ups there, show Chris Collinsworth that this is a pod that you believe in and you want to see the tools, a lot of these tools that I'm going to be talking about, especially when it comes to the betting tools that we have available with an elite subscription, I'm going to talk about and use for this analysis that, that when I'm going through the Week 10 slate, 25% off not only the fantasy content, not only the uh, showdown articles that I put out, not only the betting content, but then everything else that we have at PFF is available 25% off with promo code UNEXPECTED. Okay, so uh, what's happening with the league? This Baltimore game was a little bit of a microcosm of what we've seen, especially recently where the top dogs just keep getting plucked off one by one. The the Rams lose in embarrassing fashion. As I mentioned, the Bills had lost uh, last week. Yeah, the Cowboys end up uh, getting embarrassed at home against the Denver Broncos and so on and so forth. So what's going on here? Well, let's let's move out. Let's say, okay, what's noise? What's signal here? Let's widen our gaze. So the underdogs this season, according to numbers that I put together for a closing line, going into this week, so I'm not counting this game that we just saw, but you can add another to the ledger of underdogs, against the spread, 77-58-1, so hitting at a 57% clip. If you've been listening to this podcast in these Friday episodes, I've been recommending a lot of underdogs Recently, uh, we did hit a favorite last week, the Miami Dolphins against the Texans, because uh, I think that that is there is something real to this, to the fact that the high end talent, the high end teams are not on a level as we've seen in previous years. Um, and then the recent component that we've had come through, and this is why it's really in people's minds, but maybe 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 we'll get overplayed going forward although I do like underdogs this week, maybe we'll get underplayed going forward, is the fact that uh, underdogs of more than seven points have gone four and one outright. So they've won uh, four out of those five games, counting last weekend and then last night. And then prior to Sunday, so prior to last week, the underdogs of more than seven points were only one in 26 in this season. So this hasn't been a season-long phenomenon. If you look at com- uh, underdogs of 10 or more points, they are just eight, nine, and one against the spread this season. This isn't something where underdogs are constantly winning, but I do think there is something real to the lack of high-end play this year. When When you look at my... Power rankings, which are based largely upon the adjusted scoring differentials that we're seeing for this year at this point in the season versus what I saw from teams last year in 2020, the best team in the league this season 
according to those adjusted scores and according to priors that I have built in and according to um, strength attached to quarterback play, I have the Bucks being the best team in the NFL, closely followed by the Buffalo Bills. So the Bucks, this team, if you compare my ranking and my rating of this team versus teams from 2020, there were five teams last year, the Chiefs, the Bills, the Packers, the Saints, and the Bucks, which were all either better than the Bucks this year, according to my ratings, or within a slight margin of error. Teams like the Saints and even, even the even the Bucks were maybe a little bit lower than what the Bucks are this year, despite the fact that the Bucks probably had a stronger back end with their defensive talent. If you look at just from a talent perspective, um, so yeah, it was there were more teams that you could consistently see win at a high level last year. That's why there's been this confusion this year. If you look at the top teams in the NFL this year, the only ones you can clearly point to as being better, if we're going to go and look through um, power rankings of teams right now, the Cardinals, obviously, near the top, they're a better team than they were before. Uh, I don't think the Bucks are better, necessarily. I, definitely the Chiefs are not better. The Packers, I don't really think, are better, with Aaron Rodgers being the MVP last year. Others may, may dispute that. Titans, I'll say, are a little bit better this year. Uh, the Bills, I do not think are as good this year because of the fact that the offense is struggling despite the defense playing extremely well. The Saints are not better this year, and then the Rams are slightly better this year. But going further and further down, you have a lot of teams that are – those are really kind of like the top, top teams. I mean, you can throw Dallas in there who may be a little bit better. You can throw the Ravens who are about equal to worse – uh, than they were last year. You can throw the Browns in there who are a little bit better. So there are some slight edges there, but generally, especially the teams that were at the, the end of this distribution as being the best teams in the NFL have fallen down a bit. But the reason that we're seeing these enormous spreads, and we're not necessarily seeing these enormous enormous spreads uh, covered by the underdogs this season, despite what's happened the last week and a half, is there's also some Lower end teams that are worse this year. There is a little bit of a shift of the entire distribution to being a bit worse this season, um, especially at the very, very end. Uh, the Texans and the Lions are really, really bad this year. Uh, you know, worse on my numbers than pretty much any team last year. I thought even the teams that were struggling last year, like the Jets and the Jags, had some underlying metrics were better. And the Jets and the Jags, which were two teams that you would hope would have taken a step forward this year, would have had that improvement, had huge investments in free agency, uh, new quarterbacks coming in, drafted one and drafted two, They n- new coaches coming in. They are held back this year either by poor rookie quarterback play uh, or poor coaching or a combination thereof. Uh, those two teams have not stepped forward like you would have hoped. So when you have that really you have those teams all at the end it's going to produce some of these high spreads um but i think the jets and the jags in particular are getting better i I don't really have hope for the texans and the lions but i think the jets and the jags are getting better and it's why uh spoiler alert i like one of the two teams this week after liking one of the two teams last week in my picks so this is real this is a real phenomenon of the high-end teams not performing as well not having as consistent offensive play in particular uh, when it comes to the Chiefs and the Bills and even the Packers to, to a lesser degree. And that's what is holding them down, and we're not seeing those dominant teams like we've seen in the past. It is a real thing. Underdogs winning against the spread is a real thing. But 
the narrative that these huge underdogs are all going to cover, I wouldn't necessarily buy into. You know, stick to the process there. Don't don't turn to I'm just going to blindly bet underdogs because on a whole that has not been profitable if you're over 10 points this season. Okay, the next thing let's talk about let's talk about some of these signings that have happened. Uh, not going to affect my numbers for the games. Neither one of these teams are involved in a game that I have as being a best bet this weekend. Uh, Cam Newton, I don't think he's going to play. So Cam Newton coming into the Panthers and then Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, going to the Rams. Let's start with Newton first. I think the big picture takeaway from this is Cam Newton's probably better than P.J. Walker, probably better than Sam Darnold but also probably not elite talent, though he can really fit in well if Rule wants to lean into the run, which he said he's wanted to do recently. The problem is leaning into the run and then having Sam Darnold, with Darnold being a little bit of a turnover machine these last number of weeks, that it blows that up. Like once you throw a turnover or two into the mix, you don't have the wiggle room to get away with running a low-variance, low-efficiency offense and then grinding out victories. Your ability to do that, to thread that needle, is gone once you have a couple of turnovers, especially when you have a huge pick six like Darnold had last week. So Newton, he doesn't, you know, he, he has a little bit of a fumble problem sometimes when he runs the ball, and he's not the most careful with the ball as far as throwing it, but he's not a turnover machine. He's never been a guy who's been a big turnover percentage player plus he's a runner and in a way he normally starts the season pretty strong we saw that even with New England last year we saw that with the Panthers in 2018 so bringing him in midway through the season maybe this is a good way (laughs) to bring him in honestly because you can get a fresh Cam Newton coming in at this point in the season um, as if it's week one but yet it's week 10 so you can have some success here in a potential playoff push. I don't think they have much of a chance of even making the playoffs. But again, this is really the bigger point that, that I, what I want to talk about that isn't going to affect this season for the Panthers. But they have been acting with a we should be a playoff team type of if I wanted to be if I wanted to be like throw pejoratives in, you're kind of like a, like a desperation. If I wanted to be a little bit inflammatory there, I don't know if it's desperation or if it's just a really a desire to compete and to not the lack of patience may be the most important aspect here. Not desperation. I did say desperation. This signing might have been a bit of a desperation, the amount of money they threw out there. Um, the amount of money they threw at Matt Rule, who had never coached in the NFL. They made him, I believe, a top five coach in the NFL, if not a top two or three coach in the amount of money that he's making. That was there's a little bit of a desperation there. You know, David Tepper locked him in the room or whatever, wouldn't let him leave until he agreed and kept upping the amount until he agreed uh, on the salary. Maybe a little desperation or lack of patience in how they've approached the quarterback position more than anything else. I mean, when Rule came in in 2020, they were set up to move on from Newton. I still think that's good. For the people that are saying, oh, you should have just stuck with Newton this entire time. I don't believe that's the case. They were set up to move on from Cam Newton and also have a season, a, re- a true rebuild season, get some younger players into the mix, uh, maybe get that number one pick, Maybe get you know position yourself for Trevor Lawrence or one of these top quarterbacks who ended up coming out last year, um, who they still could have gotten Justin Fields, of course, in the draft, and they didn't take that. And 
you know, know you're going to take some lumps in that first season, but you're working patiently towards something. Instead, what they did after getting rid of Newton was they brought in Teddy Bridgewater on a 60-something million dollar contract. They brought in Robbie Anderson. Uh, They spent money on him. I believe they – I'd have to check, but I think they spent some more money on the offensive line, and then they spent every single draft pick in that draft on a defender and built up that way. And I think we're seeing the defense come together, right, because of how they built in a a more of a patient sort of way. But they tried to jumpstart the offensive success. And in my opinion, that was the mistake, not necessarily moving on from Newton, um, although they didn't have to do that, of course. But it was saying, let's try and get competent play at these different positions and then get as close to the playoffs or into the playoffs as we can immediately from day one. I think that was a mistake. Again, the lack of patience played into this season. Now, I do think it was a mistake to move on from Teddy Bridgewater because not only did they end up paying Teddy Bridgewater to go play somewhere else this season, and we're seeing how he's playing in Denver. He's not a top quarterback, but you surround him with good pieces, even though they've had a lot of injuries there. His EPA per play is in the top five this year. His grading, you know, is more like mid of uh, mid, middle of the league, fifteenth, sixteenth sort of area. But still, it's much better than bringing in Sam Darnold, second round pick, guaranteeing, exercising the fifth year option, which is a guaranteed. I don't know. I think it's nineteen million, around nineteen million ish for next season. And moving on that after losing out on the Matthew Stafford sweepstakes, moving quickly there rather than saying, let's be patient again. Let's keep Teddy. And in the draft, if a quarterback falls to us, which would have happened, Mac Jones or Justin Fields fell to them, make a decision at that point, not be conflicted, be okay, not having given up draft picks for anyone that you don't want to, you know, lose that sunk cost, essentially, for Darnold. Maybe you would have pulled the trigger on Justin Fields at that point or Mac Jones at that point. And you'd be in a situation now where you're not continually spinning your wheels uh, from one desperate desperation quarterback move to another here. They could have been in that situation, but they weren't because they want to push forward and compete now for the playoffs. And again, with bringing back Newton, I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's, I think it's perfectly fine. But the amount of guaranteed money they're giving him is more than I think New England gave him over the last two years. Uh, they said, I've read how Newton had leverage against them. I, mean, I don't know if he really did have that much leverage against them. What, what's his leverage? He's going he's gonna to sit on his couch if they don't sign him. The leverage that he had against them was their own desperation, is the fact that they had P.J. Walker, who has looked pretty bad as their backup, and they have Sam Darnold, who is continuing to look like the worst quarterback in the NFL or near the worst quarterback in the NFL, as he did before for the Jets. That's their desperation, uh, self-made desperation on their part, and that was the leverage that Newton had. Um, but again, they were not they were going to even be patient with that. They want to bring him in immediately, and they probably caved to his demands when it came to salary and incentives where those numbers can go pretty high on the incentives if they end up doing well. So that's the Panther situation. Again, for the 2021 season, upgrade. For the longer term, more troubling trends with not having patience and not building that offense and that quarterback position the way that you need to for long-term success. And when it comes to Odell Beckham Jr., I think it's pretty interesting. I think it's good for the Rams, particularly good for the, the Rams. If you look at their 
depth chart because of the fact that Deshaun Jackson is gone. So Deshaun Jackson's gone. The last week, for instance, if you look at their top three receivers, um, let me just pull it up so I can get the exact numbers here. So if you look at their top three receivers, the percentage of snaps that these receivers, so the percentage of dropbacks where they were out on the field, so they ran routes on these on these uh, passing plays. Uh, Cup, Woods, and Van Jefferson were running routes on basically 98, all of them between 98 and 96% of the passing snaps. And then you jump down next, and it's Bennett Skowronic. I don't even know who that is. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to cop to the fact that I don't know who this dude is. Sixth round draft pick last year was next in line. 3.6% of snaps. So they were... And then Tyler Higby, 94.5% of, of snaps he was playing last week. So they are heavily using a few guys, and then you got a bunch of no-names. Because um, they don't have Gerald Everett at tight end either, right? you got a bunch of no-names outside of that. So they needed some depth. Now, does OBJ and his soft tissue injuries and his AC joint and his torn labrum provide you with great assurance to make it through the rest of the season? Probably not. But he's a body. He's someone who can come in. He's someone who can rotate in. Again, I don't think he needs to fill I don't if they're smart, Van Jefferson has played pretty well this year. He has about a 14% target share this year. If they're smart, they will rotate in Beckham, uh lower some of the burden for all those receivers, mostly you know, bring down Van Jefferson's share, but also maybe bring down some of those other guys' share. Uh, as I talked about with Derrick Henry last year, wear and tear, I don't necessarily believe as much leading to injuries as I do the frequency leading to injuries. If you're Cooper Cup and you're being targeted on about 32.5% of the, the team's targets he has right now, if you're being targeted that often... That is a lot of plays you're making at the ball. It's a lot of times you put your body at risk. So if you can bring that number down, while that's not great for fantasy football, I think it's good for the overall health of the team is to, is to mix up those, those snaps more. So that's what I would see. I would see Jefferson still being involved, maybe Cooper and Cup's snap rates coming down a bit. But generally, I don't think this is a situation where with Beckham joining the best team one of the best teams in the NFL that he's going to get a ton of credit for what's going on if they're doing well unless he takes over and kind of becomes the de facto wide receiver two here I don't think he has any chance of overtaking the season that Cooper Cup is having but Cup has been so hugely hugely efficient and Woods has been pretty good his share has been coming up it's around 21 and a half percent target share now I don't know if you necessarily want to take targets away from those guys so I think Beckham may fill a little bit more of a role that those guys don't fill as far as going down the field. And unfortunately, it was a similar type of role that he had in Cleveland where his A dot was up over 13 this season. He was being used a lot more as a lower volume, deep threat. So if he fills more into that, I'm not sure if he's necessarily going to be satisfied other than the fact that the team will be winning and maybe he'll enjoy being in Los Angeles as opposed to being in Cleveland right here and uh, getting more hype and more likely, of course, to make the playoffs and to make a playoff run and a Super Bowl run than the Browns are, at least at this point in time. Although I'm not sure 
the Rams, honestly, are that much better of a team than the Browns. But they clearly have a better record and a better path to the playoffs at this point in time. Okay, so we hit those two things. And before I get into the best bets, I wanted to do one quick stick-to-sports-ish sort of discussion. And like I said, I didn't hit on the Rodgers thing that much. But what's interesting to me about the Rodgers thing and the interview with Pat McAfee last Friday, what jumps out to me more than anything with Rodgers is this phenomenon of being allergic to or not wanting to be part of the mainstream on something, not wanting to be a conformist, being a quote-unquote free thinker, as Rogers called himself, and how often that actually leads to a stronger sense of conformity and being less distinguishable within this, this whatever subculture that you end up being a part of. And the reason I say that is, when it came to Aaron Rodgers and he was talking about his opinions on the vaccine or, um, you know, the protocols or some things that he said about whether or not you're vaccinated, you could still get you could still get COVID, and the you know what what means he was taking to protect himself to quote unquote immunize himself. He talked about having, you know, 500 pages of research that he was doing in his medical team and this and that. And what he talked about doing, to me, I could have just guessed all those things. If you would have just told me Aaron Rodgers is vaccine skeptical, what would his opinion have been on these 10 subjects that he talked about? I could have just guessed exactly what his opinion would have been on all of those 10 subjects. Like he, he may be a quote-unquote free thinker, but he's very closely aligned with the conformity of opinion within – the echo chambers of these free thinkers or that are against a particular thing. It reminds me a little bit of, I never really understood a couple of different groups growing, growing up. Uh, I'm aging myself a bit here because uh, I don't think the punk rock scene was much of a thing, but I, I kind of came towards the tail end as a Gen Xer, as a young Gen, younger side of the Gen X generation of some of like the, the tail end of, you'd see some like punk rock sort of thing. You could put also maybe goth into this same sort of category, and there are others, of course, that fall into the same sort of category, like skaters, surfers, whomever you put into there, um, where you have these subcultures where, in particular, some of them, like punk, you would say, their whole ethos is we want to reject mainstream culture in a way. Maybe I'm overstating that. If you're If you're a former punk rocker, let me know if that's wrong. Uh, but we're rejecting this mainstream culture. But you look at us, how we're dressed, and superficially we're somewhat like indistinguishable from each other. So there are very rigid rules and conformity within this subgroup that wants to pride itself on nonconformist, being nonconformist, but yet high degree of conformity within that. Uh, I think it happens to a degree with – uh, my my Bitcoin friends, where again, I'm, I'm not like anti-Bitcoin, but you see a lot of that now where you're just seeing the same talking points about inflation or whatever it may be. And it seems very similar to the conformity within like gold bugs in the past and investments there that you're a quote unquote free thinker. You're against the mainstream narrative, but yet then you're following to a T all these different talking points that you maybe you're not being skeptical enough, right? It's, it's having extreme skepticism 
to the mainstream narrative and then a lack of skepticism to the beliefs within your own group. I think that that's a problem. And when we flip this over to football analysis, I know there are a lot of guys out there whom I follow that fall into this category of having very closely aligned views on a number of players. Now, it could be that maybe they're just all great analysts and they all believe that, you know, Trevor Lawrence is great. Zach Wilson's not good. Uh, Justin Fields is great and so on and so forth. Like, like that sort of is one of the things all being pro Lamar Jackson versus Baker may and all hating Baker Mayfield, all being this versus that. Right. Um, very close alignment on these things. And I think there starts to become like a conformity within a group. That's like, we're not conforming to the average NFL standard of what's going on there. It can be subject of analytics. Also, don't get me wrong. I think what helps somewhat within analytics is well, you could say we're conformist on something like being skeptical of Matthew Stafford. We do acknowledge in a way that there is a range of outcomes and we do have like numbers that we're basing this on. So at least you can see where the conformity comes from. But I disagree with people like Frisco Josh, uh, our friend Josh Hermsmeyer, friend of the pot. I disagree with them a lot on different things. I disagree with Ben Baldwin a lot on different things. I even disagree with Eric Eager and um, George Shahuri a lot on the different things. So that's always something that I want to be looking at, though, because I think I can fall into those echo chambers, too. And analytics and numbers and nerds can definitely fall into those echo chambers, too. But Rogers, in, the, in this example that he provided, having down to a T the exact philosophy that you would expect from this subculture, despite him being a quote-unquote skeptical free thinker, just pointed to how we can all fall into that sometimes when we're trying to be contrarian, trying to be nonconformist, we can end up actually having a problem with how much we do conform at that point and how we're not skeptical enough within those groups. All right, let's get to the best bets. But before we get to that, I'm going to hit DraftKings. Very important. Good sponsor for, for best bets here, which again, best bets, information, informational slash entertainment purposes only i mean i do bet them but you're you're not you're not gonna listen to this podcast to become rich betting my best bets i don't think um although hopefully you win more than you lose so anyway nfl fans hungry for a big win this week DraftKings sportsbook an official sports betting partner of the nfl has you covered new customers can bet just five dollars on any nfl team to win their game and if they do they win two hundred dollars in free bets if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code PFF. Bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win. With promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wagered. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And also want to give a shout out to Western and Southern, sponsor of the pod. Whether it's football success or financial savvy, the right questions help set the stage for winning strategies. Western and Southern is teaming up with PFF's very own Chris Collinsworth to share insights that can help put you ahead on both your fantasy and financial scoreboards. Want to hear about Chris's old playing days or behind the scenes with Al on Monday Night Football? 
How about a need-to-know for your financial future? Now you can ask about either or both. And every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. Check out the Chris Collinsworth podcast and Western and Southern's Instagram for answers to the best questions each week. Submit your questions at westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. One more time, that's westernandsouthern.com slash askchris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. All righty. Let's get into the week. So I'm going to start, as I did last week, not by – I'm not going to go through, you know, chronological what's coming on, the morning, the evening, the island games. I'm just going to go through the best bets by the advantage. So I'm going to go down at advantage. I have four plays, four underdogs. I know. I'm, I'm Mr. Dog recently. I can't help it. Um, I don't really show much value at all on favorites this week other than a little bit on the Broncos, my Broncos. I'm more of a believer in the Broncos than anyone else here at two and a half. Um, So if you want to play that, you can play that if you want to just throw a a favorite into the mix, but they're not, they're not making it into the top, top cuts here. Okay. So the top cut this week is the Seattle Seahawks. Seattle Seahawks at Green Bay Packers. Three and a half, I believe, is the line. I believe it's still the line. I don't know if there's been any Rodgers news that will move this before you guys have a chance to listen to it. Um, Looks like it opened at five, and I'm seeing some threes out there, and I'm seeing some three and a halves. I see plenty of three and a halves that are available. So at, you know, minus 110. Uh, I do see some minus 115, though, for three and a half. But I just still see some minus 110. So you could get... Three and a half, minus 110. This is a bet regardless of the Aaron Rodgers. Is he playing? Is he not? Will he have practiced? Will he not have practiced? Um, Like, my numbers would recommend this either way. Would say Seahawks, even if you assumed a regular week and full strength. Not full strength because there are guys who are going to be injured for this game. But, like, no no mix-ups. No impediments at quarterback for either team. It would still point to the Seahawks. So it's not based upon that, but it's a nice little juice that you might get from the problems there. So it gives it a little extra something so far this year. And a lot of this is based on the fact that I've gone over in being skeptical and of the Packers this year. I see a lot of people talking about, oh, the Packers, one of the best teams in in the NFL. Are they the best team in the NFL? Of course, maybe that's just our Mike Renner, uh, Packers fan, biased Packers fan who's saying that. But, like, the Packers this season, according to my adjusted score differential, my average adjusted score differential, are basically zero on the season. They're 2.1 on the season, but they're basically zero. So I know they only have the two losses, and one of them was a game that they quote-unquote should have won because Aaron Rodgers wasn't there against the Chiefs. But they've also won a few games that they should have lost, according to my adjusted scores. They just haven't been that good this season. Now, the Seahawks have been worse. They've been a couple points worse, but they've also haven't had Russell Wilson for a much longer period of time. Uh, And they're coming off of their bye this week. So that is going to, you know, be be helpful for them. Um, Actually, yeah, they are coming off their bye. I almost thought I, I messed that up. So that is also playing into the numbers here. You get a significant advantage from that. 
plus strength of schedule so far this season. The Packers are at 14th. The uh, Seahawks are at 7th. So they've had a more difficult strength of schedule so far this year. The Packers have been a better offense. And then the Seahawks have been, they've been a little bit better defense too. But again, their success rate numbers have not been nearly as good. They've benefited from more turnover luck. So that's another thing that plays into their, their favor. And I don't think that Aaron Rodgers is playing at that much better of a level than someone like Russell Wilson this year. I mean, I've also been a little bit of a Wilson skeptic when people were saying that he was close to Patrick Mahomes, close to being the best quarterback in the league. But I think head to head, I'm not necessarily leaning either way on that. And I think the Seahawks defense is sneaky a little bit better this year than what some people have given them credit for. Uh, So you combine all that together and you have better grading for Russell Wilson, which also plays into my numbers so far this year than you have for uh, Aaron Rodgers. You put all that together and getting that type of number, getting that half point over the three makes it way, way too attractive. And the Seattle Seahawks are my my play of the week. Maybe I should bring back the I forget what the full name was. Carl Tinaqua Force, the what they used to have the stone cold lock of the century of the week. So the Seattle Seahawks plus three and a half would be my stone cold lock of the century of the week. My second bet, best bet of the week, uh, the Cleveland Browns, our Cleveland Browns at, actually this is probably third, but I'll, I'll, I'll continue talking about it second. From a point differential, it's second, but we're between the threes on this. Uh, so the Cleveland Browns at New England Patriots, Plus two and a half. Again, let me just check to make sure that is still available. Yes, there are some twos. There are some one and a halves out there, but there are plenty two and a halves out there. So plus two and a half. This was one that opened at, I thought it opened at three, although I'm seeing here it opened at two and a half. Okay, I thought it opened at three and moved down, and now maybe it's, it's come back a bit. It's a strange game. I, like I said, when you're between the threes here, you're not getting the three points, so I don't love it for that. I would love if you're getting the three points, obviously for the Browns here, but I'm confident enough that they are clearly the better team, even if it is on the road, that I would still go ahead and bet this, even though you're basically betting them straight up uh, at two and a half. I mean, you're going to win maybe five, 6% of the time uh, with a one or two point loss, but not, not that often. So if we dig into the numbers here, I really have trouble finding anything that the Patriots are better than the Cleveland Browns at, according to my numbers. So this Browns team is better at everything. And I think what's playing into this, and I'll mention it, and I don't discount it, is this Browns and Baker Mayfield are going to get Jedi mind tricked by uh, Bill Belichick. And for that reason... It's going to look really, really ugly. Maybe. But is there something unique about Baker Mayfield? I don't know. I think what we're playing on here is the fact that the last time we had Browns at Patriots, I believe, was 2019 during the middle of that free fall season for the Browns. And it was a shellacking. 27-13 Patriots. And it wasn't just 27-13. There were some really ugly plays in this in this game. Uh, Let me pull up the box score just so I can remember correctly. Baker took five sacks for 43 yards. He had an interception. There were two fumbles by Nick Chubb. Both of them lost. And 
just big, big plays. The offense looked totally out of sorts for the Browns. That, that interception was a very strange one. I don't remember if it was a pick six or if it was just a very strange interception. Okay, well, there was a fumble touchdown. Yeah, no, so it wasn't a pick six, but it was a fumble touchdown. So they did have a um, a fumble six. And then the interception was a very weird play where Baker on the next, like, okay, so the, the, the Browns went fumble six, fumble on one play, a 44-yard run by Nick Chubb, which he then fumbled. Then the next play, interception, where I think they were trying to run a screen or something like that, and, and Baker got intercepted the offensive line. So it just looked awful. You know, 17 nothing very early, and they never came close. And I think people thought the Jedi mind tricks were being played then on Baker in that game, and everyone has that impression coming to this game. So I think that's why... New England is seen as being better than how I see them. Plus, they beat the Chargers, and the Chargers are seen as being a good team. They dominated the Chargers, really. But, you know, they've also had games where they lose to the Texans. And again, last week, the biggest differential between actual performance and my adjusted score performance was this New England game where they got the pick six, where they played awful awful offensive football and had a pretty big victory. But I had it as being much, much closer according to my adjusted scores. So again, just to document the fact of how different I see these teams, this just to score differentials for the the Browns, I have them as being second or third highest in the oh no, sorry, second in the AFC, close to being a top five team in the NFL for their for how well they've played so far this year. And that is against the twenty-first most difficult strength of schedule, whereas the New England's had the thirty-first strength of schedule and their adjusted score differential is slightly negative. Um, offense Browns have the number one offense in the run offense in the NFL Patriots 13th as far as efficiency I know they run it a lot but they haven't necessarily done it that well drop back offense actually pretty similar both of them are around 20th but the Browns success rate has been much better they've just had worse efficiency so that is something on a long enough timeline you'd, you'd expect that to regress better total offense Browns much much better uh, Browns a top six, seven team in total offense. The Patriots more middling team. Run defense is about the same, I would say, between these two teams. Pretty similar. Browns slightly better. And then drop back defense. The Patriots have been better from an efficiency standpoint, but then the Browns have been much, much better from a success rate. The Browns have one of the best success rates. They just haven't gotten as many turnovers, but we saw last week they started to get those turnovers, right? They got the long pick six. They got a fumble on Jamar Chase. They got another interception. Uh, the tip pass from Denzel Ward to, to Jamar Chase. So they're starting to get that stuff. New England's been getting a ton of interceptions. If you look at the EPA that the Patriots have gotten from interceptions from their defense, they're leading the league 67 points they've generated off of that versus only 26 for the Browns. Are they that much better at forcing turnovers? No. Are they a little bit better? Probably, but not that much better. Um, but the Patriots have problems with fumbles on offense, which is interesting because the Patriots are kind of known for being a team that isn't going to be a big fumbling team. Um, and if we go further into the numbers here, uh, Mac Jones, slightly better grade than Baker Mayfield, although they're about equal their efficiency. Baker Mayfield has been a little bit better. So I still think Baker's the better quarterback in this matchup also. So again, it's really tough to point to anything that the Patriots do better other than Belichick's mind tricks on uh, the Browns, which could definitely happen, and generating these big turnovers, which I believe is a little bit unsustainable. So for those reasons, I'm going to have the second bet, the Cleveland Browns plus two and a half, 
And we're going to hope that, you know, Belichick doesn't come back to, to own me on this one, which could definitely happen. Uh, next here, and this is, we're getting into some, some big, some big underdogs here. I'm playing the big underdog card. The New Jersey, New Jersey almost said they are in New Jersey. The New York Jets, they do play in New Jersey at home, uh, in MetLife Stadium in the Meadowlands of New Jersey, uh, versus the Buffalo Bills plus 13. Now this one has moved a bit, but as of this recording, you can still get 13, at uh, according to what I'm looking at, you can still get it at BetMGM, but many others have moved. It's 11 at, at DraftKings, it's 12 at FanDuel, 11 and a half, Bet 365, uh, 12 and a half points bet. So if you get that 13 at BetMGM, you should do that. Uh, hopefully it's still there. And this is mostly a play on the Bills not being as good as you think they are. Again, we. We had that ja- Jacksonville Jaguars last week. Where what was it? Thirteen and a half, fourteen and a half. Let me let me find that. Sorry, I should have had this up and ready to go. Uh, fourteen and a half. So they're playing the Jaguars last week at fourteen and a half. Now they're at the Jets, and and we're going to book them at thirteen. Still a lot of points on the road. And are the Jaguars better than the Jets? I don't think they are with Mike White at quarterback there too. I mean, you don't want to read too much into Mike White, but I think that he at least takes out the real floor outcomes that you might have with Zach Wilson as far as turnovers are, are concerned. Um, and I know they kind of grind the ball down the field. They're not necessarily going to give you explosive plays, but they are going to give you probably a higher floor outcome. And that's what be very useful in a game where you are a 13 point underdog. And you know, the, the, that's really the big thing here, and the big thing is when we go to the Buffalo Bills, and I talked about this last week, and we saw it play out against the Jaguars, who I think the Jets have a better defense than the Jaguars, is that the Buffalo offense has not been as good as people think. They're 19th in running efficiency, and they don't even try to run the ball. They had Cole Beasley in the backfield last week. They're 7th in dropback efficiency, so still good, not great. Obviously, the defense has been great. You know, number one in dropback efficiency, number one in run defense across the board. Excellent there and not even super dependent on turnovers, somewhat dependent on turnovers, but not super dependent. The Jets defense has been crazy in its inability to get turnovers. They only have 5.6 EPA that they've gotten off of interceptions this year. They've gotten like one interception or something like I I don't have the exact uh, absolute number in front of me, but that's pretty crazy to me that they've barely done anything. So they're a little bit better fundamental team than what their underlying numbers would say. They've been on average, they've been losing, the Jets have been losing by 13.4 points. My adjusted score differential is 6.7 points. So not good, but not awful. Uh, Home game, Mike White at quarterback. I have this being more like nine and a half points is where I would have this line. And it is 13. So go ahead and grab that. And let's get into the last one here for the best bets, and that is the Jacksonville Jaguars at the Indianapolis Colts, 10.5 points. Uh, The Jags came through for us last week. This may seem like pushing your luck a little bit here to to go with the Jags again, but... 
Colts, not not buying the Colts. They do have T.Y. Hilton coming back this week, so I think they can be very helpful for Carson Wentz and stretching the field. But, you know, Wentz is starting to Wentz again. I know they blew out the um, the Jets, so they have that going for them. They have a little extra rest because of that also, which is part of my numbers. But I have this game being more like eight, eight and a half. So not as good of a differential as the Jets here um, as opposed to ten and a half. So again, get get that ten and a half too. Um, that is the half point is going to be important. I don't know. Let me let me look to see what's going on. If there's anything to worry about as far as being able to get that, uh, there are plenty of ten and halves out there. There's one ten, but there's plenty of ten and halves out there for you. Um, if you look through the numbers here again, adjusted score differential, average adjusted score differential this year. I have the Colts as being. One point negative one point four, so a below average team versus negative six point four for the Jags. So the Jags are on the road. You extend it to that a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, not big enough of a difference to justify a double digit dog. Uh, and strength of schedule, the Colts have only had the twenty third hardest strength of schedule. The Jags have been seventeenth, so a little bit better as far as that is concerned. Um, drop back offense has not been that great for the Colts. 20th in the league versus 27th for the Jaguars. The Jaguars have a ton, ton of turnovers playing into that, which they've been getting a little bit better and not turning the ball over so much. And although that Seattle game was a little rough, they've been getting a little bit better there. At least Trevor Lawrence is not being graded with turnover-worthy plays nearly as much there. And the Colts have been going in the opposite direction. Wentz is starting to Wentz again after not having, only having one turnover-worthy play his first six or seven weeks. Uh, but the run offense is what's been carrying, carrying this Colts offense. But again, their their success rate running the ball is only 19th in the NFL, but they're third in their efficiency. I think that's going to revert a little bit back to success rate. I love Jonathan Taylor. He has clear physical characteristics to get big plays and big runs. But will that continue Every game happening, I don't think so. And maybe this is a game where it doesn't happen. And 10.5 points, getting that gives you plenty of room to potentially pay off there. Uh, The Colts and the Jags have pretty good run defenses relative to their pass defenses. That's another reason why I like this matchup is if the Jags can't run and the Colts can't run, which we'll see if that ends up happening. But if it plays out that way, I kind of like the Trevor Lawrence versus Carson Wentz, who's who can win this game, especially if you get spotted 10.5 points. Uh, again, the Jags have had awful turnover problems this year, and the Colts have had a lot of turnover luck. So that has a chance to even out a little bit. And just generally, I'm just not buying the Colts more than I'm buying the Jags in this one. I think the Colts are a pretty average-ish team, and you can't give average-ish teams 10-point spreads, even if they are at home. To quickly talk about the other games, ones that I'd have sort of leans on, but I wouldn't pick. Uh, one would be uh, leaning towards the Raiders versus KC, although that's very, very close. Uh, going through the rest of the games here, a slight lean on the Vikings versus the Chargers. If you get that at three, that's not so bad. Um, there was, okay, well, I'm looking at Miami. There being a lean on Miami, but of course that is in the books already. Um, what else do we have here? Basically, no, nothing on San Francisco, L.A. That's completely wiped out. That's even as uh, for if L.A. is favored by four against San Francisco. Nothing on Washington, Tampa Bay, which I'm a little bit surprised by. Now, Tampa Bay doesn't have built into it the fact that Godwin looks like he might be out. Antonio Brown is out. Um, 
Rob Gronkowski out. So they're missing some pieces there for sure. And the back end has been a disaster for the Washington football team defense. So there could be some value there. Uh, nine and a half is not bad. Uh, Dallas, Atlanta. I see a lot of people like Atlanta plus nine. That's probably it's a pretty popular one here. I do have it slightly leaning towards Atlanta, but it's just weird to me to see last week it was 10 for the Broncos at Dallas. And for my numbers, the Broncos are a much, much better team than the Atlanta Falcons. So the fact that it's moved down to nine for the Falcons, I'm not sure if that's overweighting the Falcons in their recent success, uh, a reaction to Dallas uh, pooping the bed last week against the Broncos, a combination of those two things. So optically, you may look at this and say, I can't believe the Falcons, who are on a hot streak here, are such a big number at Dallas. But I actually think it's a pretty fair number. It's it's one of my lower differentials, leans that I would have here, whereas some other people are pointing to that as being obvious. What was obvious was last week, the Broncos plus 10. That was obvious with Jerry Judy back. But people seem to be shocked by that one. Not us. We got that as a, as a best bet. Uh, what else we have here? Like I said, Denver, I have a slight lean against Philadelphia especially if you get it under two and a half, uh, two and a half, that's pretty good. And then the rest are straight up, no pick, no lean, no anything on these. Uh, Pittsburgh, Detroit, eight and a half, I have a right at, right at eight and a half. Arizona against the Panthers, 10 and a half, right at 10 and a half. And Tennessee versus New Orleans at three. Now the Arizona Carolina one, what's interesting is like, how do you function pj walker into it i have a slight downgrade for walker as part of this from darnold but you know darnold's been so bad that it doesn't make that big of a difference here and i think just the variance that you're going to get with walker is not really worth saying this double digit dog on the road if that's worth playing into because i do think the cardinals have been really really good this year Uh, maybe a little bit underrated for as far as compared to teams especially teams like green bay who they lost to of course and some other top teams in the nfc but that's it for me, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I know it went a little bit longer this time, but I gave you some more information and a little bit of my discussions beforehand. Please rate, review the pod. Please leave comments on YouTube. I go in there. I look at them. I don't get offended by criticism because I ignore the stuff I don't think is in good faith or accurate. And then I respond, even if the tone is a little off, even if the tone's a little bit snarky, tone's a little aggressive, I'll still respond to many people that bring up good concerns because I, uh, I value the feedback from everyone out there. And have a good weekend. Have a successful, financially profitable weekend if you're doing some betting or some DFS. And I'll be talking to you again on Tuesday. Thanks, everybody.